0: All right, so good morning everybody right. on Lord's Day. Um, so today we are going to continue with the series I've been doing um, where we're going through our statement of faith, our church's statement of faith. I, I again posted it on uh, on the Telegram app on the um, Soli Deo Gloria ch- uh, page there. So you can read it read along as I, as I do it or read it later, however you want to do it. And this is the fourth part of the series. Um, and just to review, the first part, we t- again, we talked about the Word of God as our standard of truth, as our ultimate authority in faith and practice. Um, and then we talked about in part two, the attributes of God. And in part three, the last time, we covered the nature of man and God's redemption of man. But today, we are going to look at the entity that is the church, um, also known as the Bride of Christ, also known as the ekklesia in Greek, which means the called out ones. Um, and, and it's really providential yeah. <laughs> that this topic is happening this week <laughs> um, with everything that's gone on with what we talked about earlier. Um, and, and this was this was a sermon I had prepared weeks ago. And so anything that's here here is just that's God's providence that has anything rel- relating to what we've experienced here. But anyway, um, let me begin by reading the next section of our Statement of Faith, which deals with the church, it says we believe Jesus Christ established His church, which is made up of all the elect of God. His church, as an obedient bride, listens to His word as found in the Bible, and all who believe in Christ are placed in His body, the local, or the church. The local expressions of the church are very important, and each believer should be actively involved in such a fellowship. We believe that these local expressions of the church should be led and taught by a plurality of elders who have demonstrated faithful maturity in the faith and an ability to rightly discern and teach the word of God. And we'll stop there. So the first part of this statement, in our statement of faith, um, says that Jesus established his church. Of course, I think when we talk about this word church, I think we all know that we are referring not necessarily to a building, um, but we are referring to a body of believers that are coming together as followers of Christ. Traditionally, uh, when we use the word we're going to church, we're referring to a building, per se, but again, that is not how the Bible uses the word church or ecclesia. It is speaking of God's new covenant people, his called out ones. However, scripture... And this is pretty cool. Scripture does compare this group of believers, these followers of Christ, to a building, ironically enough. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 we're going to read. And in this, God by his Holy Spirit inspired Paul to make an illustration of the church by using a physical structure, a building. It says, in verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're going to examine this passage a little closer. First, it says that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are, as Christians, we are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, when we are born, we were all illegal immigrants in God's kingdom, if you will. Um, But God chose to save us, to save save each of us, by his sovereign grace, Uh, and because of that, He has made us citizens of his kingdom here on earth. As born-again believers in Christ, we are now citizens with all the saints that have come before us and all the saints that will come after us. Now, that brings up another another issue. This word saint is often misconstrued. Um, Saints are not a higher class of Christians that are somehow more holy than others. That, that's what Roman Catholicism essentially teaches, that saints are an elite class of Christians who have died, who performed miracles in their lives. But that's not established in Scripture. Scripture teaches that all who are saved by grace through faith in Christ are saints. Uh, set apart for God. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints... Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, I would ask all of us, are we being sanctified in Christ? If you can say yes to that, then you are a saint. Um, All truly born-again believers are being sanctified in Christ. So, clearly, God refers to all Christians as saints. Anyway, we as saints are metaphorically spoken of in this passage in Ephesians as bricks, if you will, that God is building his temple with. A spiritual temple with the foundation being the apostles and the prophets. So if you think of this, this building that is that God is building, this spiritual building, you have the, the prophets and the apostles, It's the foundation, the foundation of the church that everything is built upon, okay? Um, And then you have the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, which is what the first stone that is laid for the building, which the entire building is oriented upon that stone, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone, as we will see in this passage. And then, with that foundation, we are laid as his saints upon that foundation held together by mortar that is a picture of our faith <laughs> mm-hmm. okay um, but there's a metaphor within a metaphor referring to the prophets and the apostles because if you think about the prophets and the apostles what the whole church is built upon how, how are we built upon the apostles and the prophets well who were the apostles and the prophets to us these were men that wrote scripture the prophets wrote the Old Testament. The apostles wrote the New Testament. So when, when it talks about the apostles and the prophets being the foundation, it's talking about the Word of God. It's talking about the Bible. It's talking about the Scripture as our foundation, which is the testimony of the cornerstone Jesus Christ. Um, it's talking about the God-breathed, inspired testimony of God's interaction with his creation. More specifically, the Old and New Testaments being the testimony of Christ As as our centerpiece, the the cornerstone upon which the entire spiritual structure is built. Um, And this is how, when we look at Christ as our cornerstone, this is how a cornerstone in a building structure, everything is aligned with that cornerstone. It's measured by that cornerstone in in its beginnings of being built. And that's how we are. We are measured by Christ, and and we are made. We are made in the image of God, but then we are imputed with Christ's righteousness. So we are measured to Him. And um, why we also, like in a building that rests upon this foundation and rests upon this cornerstone, we rest upon Christ in everything. You know, He is our entire st- uh, source of stability. And this is such a, a beautiful metaphor. And this metaphor of a building where God dwells, speaking of the, the spiritual temple of, of, of God, was established in the Old Testament. And it was established in the Old Testament as a prophetic shadow of a heavenly reality. And what do I mean when I say a prophetic shadow? Well, a prophetic shadow is like a predictive picture or a symbol ahead of time that would speak of something that would come in the future. Um, so, the, so the Old Testament tabernacle, if you remember the tabernacle the Jews would build in the wilderness and then eventually at the temple, those were prophetic shadows or pictures of the spiritual church that God would build. If you remember, the, the tabernacle was the tent that Jews constructed in the wilderness and was where they went to meet with God. God's presence was there. And then later, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem as a more permanent meeting place with God. And these are physical structures, and they were prophetic pictures of the church that Christ would build with regard to saving a people unto himself. Um, a people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And it's, it's manifest fulfillment of God's temple in the New Testament it is not a physical building of brick and mortar, but the people who are called the church as they have become the temple of God, both individually. And collectively as the church first corinthians three sixteen testifies to this it says do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is holy and you are that temple that's that's an awesome statement mm-hmm. when you start to think about the whole picture the Old Testament temple and everything that God is doing and building his church now. It's a heavy statement that I think a lot of Christians today take for granted. Um, in our fallen nature, we kind of take things for granted sometimes and overlook things. Um, but the temple in the, whole, in the Old Testament was such a sacred space, a sacred place, really, a sacred space, for lack of a better term. And, and the Jews were called to approach it with great reverence, okay? Because they were coming into the presence of. Of the, of, of the Holy God. The Holy God. Now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yet much of the church, and, and as well as the gathering of his people, but yet much of the church, if you observe things today, has become very loosey-goosey and very irreverent in this reality of God's constant presence with us. Not only in our in, individual lives, which we all fall short of, um, but also in church gatherings, okay? And there are, there are those who are professing Christians and are Christians who tend to be repelled by those things that are too religious-feeling or too traditional or, for lack of a better term, too, too churchy. <laughs> um, and, and, and there is a, an unhealthy pushback against how the church has been done for the past 2,000 years mm-hmm. because... Of a fear of traditionalism and a fear of legalism but ironically uh, this pushback against church tradition has become another form of legalism um, I think in many cases rejecting all that has come before us with regard to lit- the liturgy of the church um, it's, it's like the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater in rejecting anything that smells of a traditional church practice, and as a result, as a result, church has become more of a production uh, to show, more of a show catered to entertaining a congregation, keeping them interested, rather than giving glory to God. And yes, some things that have been ancient traditions in the church throughout history have do not bring glory to God. Okay. Um, And in some cases, ancient traditions have been actually contrary to Scripture. But we shouldn't just dismiss the biblical traditions that have been practiced along with unbiblical traditionalism. And then exchange those things for the irreverent, worldly, man-centered productions that have infected much of the church today. You know, the rock concerts, the light shows, the smoke machines, the choreographed dancing, the skits, the plays, the secular music. You know, I actually saw something on YouTube uh, a few weeks ago where a worship a mega, mega church worship band was actually playing Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin for worship. I like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, but I ain't worshiping, worshiping God with it. Um, church is not to be a means of entertainment for us. Okay, Church is, is not to be a place where we go to hear a motivational speech or even a place we go to learn how to make our lives more pleasurable or more fulfilling. Sermons are not supposed to just give people what they want to hear, but what they need to hear on a spiritual level, in order to to equip the church to bring glory to God in the furtherance of his kingdom. Church is where we go to report for our marching orders for the spiritual uh, battle that we are in daily. Neither is the church to be looked at as merely a social gathering for like-minded people, wherein... We go to some to share a meal and casually talk about God. No, that is a breeding ground for biblical illiteracy. And that kind of environment attracts every wind of false doctrine to enter it. There's a reason why we must maintain a certain kind of sober reverence in how we conduct our church service and how we conduct our worship so that the holy and merciful God and his truth remains our focus. And yes, here at Soli Deo Gloria Church, we are obviously casual in our church gatherings that we conduct in various houses. And and that in itself is not wrong, but we, at the same time, need to be careful of that so that we don't become so casual that we have no reverence in our worship of God, that we don't become distracted as to why we gather. And that is why Uh, We maintain here in this church, as elders, we have decided to maintain a formal structure to our worship service that includes the elements that God has prescribed for his church to practice in worship, in which the primary element of of those things are the teaching of his word. Mm -hmm. He has formed us as bricks, that he has bonded together in the building of his temple upon the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus and the foundation... That is his word, the scripture, the apostles, the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus uses his word to build his church for his glory, not for ours. And therefore, we don't draw people into the church or or keep them there through entertainment or through some kind of seeker-sensitive preaching. The Lord adds to the church day by day those who are being saved. That's what Acts 2.47 tells us. Mm-hmm. People don't draw near unto Christ through the production that we perform or the right formula of teachings that we present. Um, Matthew 16, 18, If you want to turn there. This testifies to the fact that Jesus is the builder. And he uses what to build his church he uses the revelation of himself to draw his people unto himself I'm going to read uh, verses 13 through 18 in Matthew chapter 16 says now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples why or who do people say the son of man is and they said some say John the Baptist Jesus, here it says, he builds his church. And he builds it upon this rock, is what it says specifically. This rock. Write that down so we remember that term. This rock. Uh, the question is what is this rock referring to? (laughs) Hmm. Having the right kind of seeker sensitive services directed toward a certain geographically dominated demographic? No, that's what Acts 29 does. (laughs) Um, But that isn't the rock that Jesus is referring to. Roman Catholics twist this text in Matthew 16-18 to say that the church is built upon Peter. They see Peter as the rock that Jesus was referring to, because in Aramaic uh, the name Cephas, which is translated Petra, Petra in Greek, that means rock. Okay, and they thus interpret this as Peter being that rock, and therefore he must be the first leader of the church, the first pope, and from there. They claim that Peter established his papacy in Rome, and therefore every bishop that follows him in that office of the bishop of Rome is the leader of the worldwide church, the vicar of Christ. They draw this all from that one verse, that upon this rock I will build my church. Roman Catholics use this verse to establish ultimate authority over the whole church and apostolic succession under Peter. But that system of authority is all built on a wrong understanding of the application that Jesus was bringing forth in Matthew 16, 18. As the Greek grammar of that verse clearly shows Jesus identifying, quote, this rock as something or someone other than Peter. Okay? Jesus uses two personal pronouns referring to Peter when he said, I tell you, you are Peter. But then Jesus said, and on this rock... I will build my church Jesus did not say and upon you the rock I will build my church no he said and on this rock he changed the the, the grammar and in and the, the if he were to say that I would build the church upon you the rock that would have been the more grammatically accurate way to communicate that meaning if he was referring to Peter as the rock but rather Jesus uses the demonstrative pronoun, this rock. And the only reason to use a demonstrative pronoun here is to point to something other than Peter. And in the full context of this verse, if you remember those verses that led up to that, the rock is in reference to the revelation of who Jesus is. Let me me read it again, just to remember In Matthew 16, 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, But my Father who is in heaven. Then Jesus says after that, the church will be built upon this rock, which is in the context of the revelation of who Jesus is, not the revelation of who Peter is. Mm -hmm. Jesus includes Peter in this statement as one of his vessels through which this revelation would go forth as a poetic contrast of the true rock, which Peter was named after, and Peter means rock, yeah. But the revelation of who Jesus is, is the rock that he builds his church on. And this is affirmed and confirmed by the passage that we read earlier in Ephesians 2.19. Let me read it again. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the the Spirit. Jesus in that passage is the rock, the cornerstone that the church is being built upon. Not Peter. There is no distinct mentioning of Peter in this passage. There is a reference to the apostles and the prophets being the foundation, but again, it's that, not isolating Peter as this leader. And again, that is in reference to their written testimony of scripture, the written testimony of the cornerstone, the rock upon which the church is built, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is relevant to my, my topic today with regard to the church because it again establishes the foundation of the church. And the authority that the Church abides under, which is the written revelation of Jesus Christ, not some Pope in Rome. And this is such a great picture, as we have been added to this structure that is the spiritual Church, built upon the rock of Christ. As I said before, faith is the mortar that secures us to each other, and to the foundation, and to the cornerstone, who again is Christ. All who have been given savings faith in Christ are part of his spiritual structure, his his church, his building, his temple. And just think of how how this picture unifies us in Christ as his temple. And yes, we may have disagreements with other Christians about a great many things. But we need to remember that we are all part of the same structure that Christ is building. Also... The physical human body is another metaphor used in Scripture for the church, just like the temple. If you turn to First Corinthians twelve, we'll see that. First Corinthians twelve. I'm going to read verses twelve through twenty. It says for just as the body As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So this is another beautiful picture of the church. We've all, as, as God's unique creations made in his image, we've all been given gifts by God that are different than the gifts the others have. But and Because each of us have a role to play in serving Christ, in using those gifts that he's blessed us with, to minister to his body, to bring him glory. Those unique environments that we find ourselves in, those unique circumstances, those unique relationships that we are all placed into by God's sovereign hand, God uses us in different ways in those situations. Some people in the church are teachers who each have distinct styles and perspectives in their presentation of the Word of God. Some are musicians that can lead us in worship with song, okay? Some have great interpersonal skills. Some have great compassion and empathy for for the people of God. Some have the gift of encouraging others. Others are gifted in ministering to the children. Some have very practical skills. Some are financially gifted to minister to people's needs. And I could go on and on and on about how we are all gifted in many ways to minister to God's body, to Christ's body, the church. Just as each part of our human bodies have a role to play in ministering to our physical body as a whole. Okay? Every part of us is important to the full function of our human body. I mean, think about things that we consider unimportant, like our eyebrows or our eyelashes or our fingernails. I mean, these things are significant in the function of us of being able to see and work with our hands. Okay? So they may seem minuscule, but they are critical to the functioning of the body. Um, And this is why local expressions of the church are so very important. And each believer should be actively involved uh, in such a fellowship, using the gifts that they've been given to minister to the body, so that we can effectively get to know and minister to the needs of everyone in that local body. The goal is to have everyone in the body of believers serving in some capacity. And everyone is blessed. Even the person serving is blessed in doing that. Amen. And the biblical model of the church is not the mega church Mm -mm. where you go and get spoon-fed some teaching and then leave and go about your day. Mm -hmm. But it was groups of believers meeting in homes, much like what we've been doing for the past two years. Being part of a functioning body of believers is crucial to the Christian walk. As we all still struggle in our in our fallen sinful nature, and out on our own, if we were to go out on our own and abandon the gathering of the church, we would easily be drawn into worldly pursuits, worldly thinking, worldly compromise, becoming totally distracted from the work of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, an integral part, a critically important part of our Christian faith is being part of a body of believers, regardless of size or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you refuse to be in fellowship, if you say, I'm not, I refuse to be in, in a church, then I would ask, how does the love of Christ abide in you? We are called by God to minister to each other in many ways, not just through uh, biblical teaching, but through prayer, through relationships, through encouraging one another, having accountability to one another. We are to, to minister to each other's spiritual needs because we love each other. And we want to be together with each other because we have that common bond in Christ. Um, And ministering to each other is how the early church survived and thrived under great persecution in the early centuries. And this is how the modern church will survive and thrive under the coming persecution that we will face. Or may face, I don't know. But this is why God commanded us not to cease gathering together with the church critically important verse for us today is Hebrews 10, 24-25. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, speaking of the day of judgment. But also, we as a church must not just function with a survival mentality. You know, we got to get together so we can survive. You know, This isn't really the mentality that we should have. Jesus said in reference to the church, again in that passage in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It is the enemy who is on the defensive hmm. in the true reality of things. The church is on the offensive. We are on the attack. We as the, the church are following our king into enemy territory and claiming the spoil. The spoil of the victory that Christ has already achieved on the cross. Amen. The enemy knows this. And the enemy is terrified of this. And this is why he tells his servants to tell us to keep our faith to ourselves. Be quiet. You know, practice your church, your, your, your religion in your church on Sundays. Don't bring it to the, anywhere else in the rest of the week. But Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to live in silence of that fact. The Holy Spirit didn't regenerate our hearts and grant us the gift of faith for us to hide that light. God the Father didn't choose each of us to be part of his body or his temple, his city on the hill, so that others would never see those things. Some will say, well, preach the gospel by what you do, not by what you say. (laughs) However, all that does is cause people to see you and not Christ. And it also causes them to not see themselves. Hmm. And you don't want people looking at your conduct because they will find plenty of flaws if they're looking. (laughs) No, the gospel must be proclaimed along with the imperfect but sanctified conduct of our lives. We proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ, so the elect of God hear the voice of their shepherd and are then set free, through which the enemies of God are put under his feet as God's kingdom on earth grows. The point is that, the, again, the church is on the attack against a defeated enemy, and we need to have this mentality as we go forward. Too many Christians are hiding in the woods, afraid of talking about their faith, afraid that talking about their faith will drive people further away from Christ. But that's the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. And thank God that those faithful servants shared their faith with us. Mm -hmm. They did not keep silent about their faith. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we do need, as this body, the gathering of the saints to be used by God to sustain us in this warfare that we are engaged in daily. This is why God gave us that command that I read earlier in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, to not abandon the gathering of the church. So, with that said, what is church supposed to look like? How do we know what the early Christians were doing in their gatherings in the first century? Well, listen to this passage in Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 2 starting at verse 42, that describes what church was like in the first century. All right, Acts, Acts 2.42 2, It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul So, what are the elements of the early church? Well, it says right off the bat the apostles' teaching, teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread. Wrote this before. <laughs> Breaking of bread. And what was the other thing? Um, prayers. Prayers. How could I forget prayers? Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> um, that's. This is the liturgy that we practice. Okay. Uh, what I mean by liturgy is um, basically our conduct of worship, our, our, how we how we formally approach each of our worship services. Um, but wait a minute. This also says other stuff. This passage says that they shared their wealth. So does the Bible support socialism and communism? <laughs> but I wonder if you guys were thinking of that. No, the Bible actually supports property rights, which is why God commanded us to not steal our neighbor's possessions. Um <laughs> Uh, this passage is just showing how Christians in that day voluntarily shared their wealth with each other in love and fellowship in Christ. The government didn't force them to give up their possessions, as socialism and communism does. So we'll put that to bed. Anyway, this Acts two model is the model that we try to follow, as have the majority of Orthodox churches throughout history. Okay, through the liturgy of these things, God is glorified and the people are blessed. And we, as we grow in our knowledge of God through His Word, and we don't just have the Word taught to us, so that again we can, so that we can live better lives pragmatically. This teaching and learning of God's Word is an act of worship in itself. Too many seek to be entertained by the teaching in the church, and we need to understand why Scripture must be formally taught to the church by qualified elders devoted to the apostles' teaching. Ephesians 4:11 through 16 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God, to attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed And when it started off talking about the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or pastors and teachers, these are all ministers of God's word. <laughs> these things they, they taught in the early church spoke of their doctrine that they were sharing with each other, theology that they were sharing with each other. It speaks of the church having a unity concerning our knowledge of the Son of God. That's literally what it says. And that sums up why we are going through this statement of faith. Again, I hear Christians saying they don't need to be theologians. They just need to know how to, uh, know how to die to self and to love others. Well, dying to self and loving others is important. But the how and the why of those things are grounded in doctrine and theology. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus all, to some degree, talk about dying to themselves and loving others. But none of them know Christ. None of them represent God. None of them know how to die to self or how to love others as God would have us to do. Nor do they know why. Instead, they and many others create false doctrines that we as mature Christians need to be able to recognize and identify. There is an abundance of craftiness and deceitful schemes, as the, as the scripture said, being communicated throughout the world and even in the church. There are demons devoted to causing us to doubt what God has said and then for us to just go our own way. So growing in our theology strengthens our faith and helps us to better identify the lies and the schemes of the enemy. One of those lies and schemes of the enemy that is deceiving so many Christians to this day is that pastors shouldn't be teaching in-depth theology in the pulpit. But the reason why so much sinful compromise has occurred in the church is because churches are filled with biblical illiteracy. Mm -hmm. And that creates a breeding ground for heresy and false teachers. Heresies like the woke church movement, social justice, the prosperity gospel, idol worship. Biblical illiteracy uh, creates churches where all kinds of sexual sin are being accepted and celebrated. I heard one pastor a few days ago on YouTube twist the scriptures to make a case that the Bible is pro-choice with regard to abortion. it It was amazing how he twisted the scriptures. Biblical illiteracy allows false teachings to redefine what sin is. Biblical illiteracy allows false teachings to redefine what love is, what gender is, what fatherhood is, what motherhood is, and what the family is. Biblical biblical illiteracy allows false teachers to redefine what the gospel is. Our pursuit of truth must be grounded in sound doctrine and biblical theology. So the formal teaching of scripture to the church is is a huge part of what our gatherings should be. They must be. And we learn the deeper aspects of the faith. And Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for still sipping on the milk of the word instead of the meat. As did the writer of Hebrews. Uh, if you want, you can turn to Hebrews 5.11. You can hear, hear, hear this, this rebuke of this shallow teaching. Hebrews 5.11 says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unschooled in the work word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So yeah, we should work towards that in-depth teaching, but we need to we need to show some progress toward that we need to get deeper and deeper each time we we go into the word so that we can expand our ability to understand scripture the deeper things so we as a church again should be growing more and more into the consuming of the meat of the word meat being a metaphor for deeper theology deeper and deeper application we should not be theological vegetarians (laughs) quiet <laughs> Like that. <laughs> yes, I knew Mark would love that comment. Anyway, fellowship is also a major aspect of the church. It is through fellowship that we get to know and love each other. We encourage each other and strengthen each other in, in our in our individual walks. And let me again read Hebrews ten twenty four. It says, "And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works." Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Our God is a relational God. Mm. He is three persons and one being. Mm-hmm. And these three persons are in perfect fellowship with one another, as his church should be. Mm-hmm. Our fellowship is grounded in our common love for Christ, wherein we are invested and involved in each other's lives. Anyway... We also partake in our in our gatherings, in the breaking of bread together, um, in the church, as, as an expression of our not only our fellowship with Christ, but as an act of worship in our remembrance of what Christ has done for us. That's communion. Okay, uh, we remember that finished work of Christ on the cross, and we do that through the symbolic elements of the the wine or the juice and bread. But originally communion. Um, was not just a piece of, piece of matzah and a small cup of juice or wine. Um, the early church shared full meals together for communion. For over a thousand years, communion, or the Lord's Supper, has usually entailed little more than, than a wafer and a tiny taste of wine. But if, if there's one thing that's clear from the account of Acts and the description in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper was a full meal. Mm-hmm. Okay, And in Corinth, in Corinth, Uh, The problem with the meal was that some people were eating and drinking everything before everyone had arrived. Um, Some people were even getting drunk on wine as they they were waiting for the full gathering to take place. The more wealthy people were able to come earlier to the gathering, and then those who had to work longer days um, were left out because everything was consumed. And Paul instructed them to wait for one another so that everyone can share in the food and the drink. It was to be a fellowship meal. And he told the Corinthians that if there are some who are too hungry to wait, then they should eat a little bit at home before they come. <laughs> very very practical. Um, also, at least the at the beginning of the second century, the church had begun meeting in the pre-dawn air hours of, of Sunday morning. And this this move from evening to morning, motivated by the desire to honor the resurrection of Jesus, that entailed a loss of the meal, since the meal belonged to the evening in that culture. Morning breakfast was very minimal in the Mediterranean culture. Anyway, agape meals eventually disappeared uh, from church practice in the 4th through the 6th centuries. So the church had a supper without a supper, (laughs) But the ordinance of consuming the bread and wine or the body and blood of Christ remained the key aspect of church gatherings. So we here at Soli Dea Gloria Gloria uh, have in varying degrees, not only partaking that every time we meet, but we also ha- include meals, whether they be dinners, lunches, or snacks as part of our gatherings. And in my opinion, it's a wonderful blessing to do that because Amen. nothing fuels fellowship more than the sharing of a meal together. Um And that's a regular practice of a family. Mm -hmm. So, So as the church does it, the church becomes more and more like family. In addition, we, like all churches throughout history, incorporate music and singing into our corporate worship of God. Which is also a biblical practice for God's people. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, singing psalms and hymns. Our singing to God is a result of us being filled with the Spirit wherein our emotions overflow into rejoicing in Christ and what he has revealed to us. There is certainly an emotional element linked to music that connects to our hearts and minds. Um, But this is what the early church did. They didn't sing to entertain each other or to keep people coming back to the church. No, they sang as expressions of thankfulness as an expression of worship of the one true and living God. This was also the practice of the Jews in the Old Testament days. And their songbook was the book of Psalms. <laughs> but the early church also had their own hymns that came from New Testament scripture that they would sing. My goal is to, I'm trying to put together uh, some music for uh, Colossians 1:15 through 20, that we would sing as the early church did, because certain sections of scripture that have been identified by scholars as hymns that the early church sang. Philippians two, six through eleven, Romans eleven, thirty-three through thirty-six, Colossians one, fifteen through twenty. These are examples where the church would sing these portions of Scripture as hymns in worship of God. Music has always been a key aspect for God's people in the act of worshiping God. Psalm 33, 1-3 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, which is a musical instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. <laughs> There are some who insist that we should not use musical instruments in the worship of God. Um, very, they can be very legalistic about that. I've met people in my past with the solid, solidly said you should not use instruments. But clearly, this passage in Psalm 33 is okay with at least a 10 string harp. So I'm assuming a six string harp is okay too. Um, some people claim that drum beats are of the devil. However, Psalm 149.3 says, Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. A tambourine is a percussion instrument that provides a beat or a rhythm. So the only thing coming from the devil is the unbiblical legalism that anti-musical instrument people preach and how we should worship God. Anyway, another key aspect of this section of our statement of faith is our practice of church governance. And oh wow, this time has gone by fast. Um, We believe each church should be led by a plurality of elders instead of a single pastor. First and foremost, we hold to this model because it is the biblical model. I'm going to read some scriptures to you real fast. Acts 14.23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with Prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. James five fourteen says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, elders, plural, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Titus one five says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order into order, and appoint elders in every town as I had directed you. A plurality of elders in every church is being established. And these all point to that, that early church practice. Okay, There's an accountability. There's a strength in churches that are led by a plurality of mature, qualified elders. And I think many of us have experienced problems in churches that were led by a single man. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lack of accountability when a single pastor leads because he's going to have blind spots. Okay, he may have all the right intentions, but he's going to have blind spots, and the enemy is going to identify those blind spots and attack. It shortchanges the congregation because the combined wisdom of multiple men versus one is going to leave them wanting. Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, "Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed." Ecclesiastes four twelve says, "And through a man, and though a man." Might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. However, I'm certainly not saying that just because a church is led by a plurality of elders, that they won't have problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but a church led by a plurality of elders is better equipped to deal with those problems and deal with them without disrupting or destroying the church. And the term translated to elder in the New Testament is used interchangeably with the word pastor or overseer or bishop. Um, In some churches today, they invent this hierarchy wherein a bishop is higher than a pastor, a pastor is higher than an elder, and so on and so forth. However, that hierarchy is not established in Scripture. There's also churches today that are governed by things called deacon boards. I was in a church that was done that way, and it became very political wherein key decisions were being made by people who were in many ways biblically ignorant. This is why we as elders here at Soli Deo Gloria are convinced that what we are doing with a plurality of elders is the biblical model. And the Bible gives us those qualifications. I'm not going to read it to you now, but it gives us qualifications that we are to look to for those elders in the church. First Timothy 3, 1-7 uh, through 7 establishes that. And all of the elders here at Soli Deo Gloria, we have examined each other, have met those qualifications. Now there is a degree of subjectivity when we look at those qualifications. I mean, how do we objectively determine if someone is able to teach or if he manages his household well? well these are subjective standards that leave room for grace as long as there are no clear issues of sin that are known. Uh, we make these judgments based on an overall picture of each person's life that are that are candidates to be elders. So I'm out of time. Um, so I'm going to end here uh, pretty close to the end. Uh, but there's two other sections of our statement of faith that I'm not going to go into today because we have addressed them in the past. Those being baptism. Um, about a year ago, I gave a, a pretty long teaching on baptism so if you want to go back and look at that um, I'd encourage you to do that but also the other section of our statement of faith is eschatology and if you remember a few months ago we did a pretty exhaustive run through various views of eschatology sharing our our views on that so I'm not going to bring that back up again but that we've established that but those are in our statement of faith um, as far as what those statements are and I'd encourage you to Read through those in the statement of faith, so to remind you what we what we believe. But I'm going to say this: that in to conclude our series, um, and we hit the series on the statement of our statement of faith. We hit on the main elements of the faith, and again, I think it's very important that we understand where we are at doctrinally, so that we have that unity and why we believe what we believe. Um, because there is an abundance, like I said, I've said multiple times, there is an abundance of false doctrines blowing around many churches today um, that are deceiving people, that are hurting people, that are causing people to doubt their faith. And those deceptions uh, are only gr- going to grow as more and more people become deceived by them. So again, we must be prepared with our shield of faith to be strong in repelling those demonic darts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's end here. Uh, Gracious and Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you've given us such a clear picture, Father God, of how your church is to, is to function, Lord God, mm-hmm. how we are to bring you glory, what your mission is for us as your church, Lord God, and, and the, the, all the guidelines that you've given us, Lord, that the enemy would not get a foothold, Lord, but that we can continue engaging in that victorious uh, um, effort that you have already achieved, Lord God where we go in and claim that spoil mm-hmm. of a defeated enemy, Lord, and mm-hmm. calling your, your people into salvation, Lord, and giving you glory, honor, and praise as we do it. Mm-hmm. So, Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this body of believers. I pray you would continue to grow each of us in our love for you, our love for each other, our knowledge of you, Lord God, that you would continue to equip us to be ministers of your truth mm-hmm. for the furtherance of your kingdom, So be glorified and be magnified in our hearts as we continue on in our worship service. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.